Today's episode is presented by Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is the plant-based subscription meal kit that makes it easy to cook irresistible meals to fuel your body. Each week, choose from an expansive and delicious menu of dinners, lunches, breakfasts, and snacks. Every box is an opportunity to learn and experience something new with easy recipes and fresh pre-portioned ingredients. No shopping, no food waste, just globally inspired, restaurant-quality, plant-based meals. Get $30 off your first box by going to purplecarrot.com and entering the code PODGO30 at checkout today. That's PODGO30 for $30 off your first Purple Carrot box. Purple Carrot, the easiest way to eat more plants. Welcome back, finally, to the Kitchen Survival Guide. We are so excited to present our episode on ancient Chinese food culture, the salt industry, soy sauce and fermentation, the Great Wall of China, agriculture and livestock, rice fish culture, so many more things. I mean, China has existed for over 4,000 years. It's a lot of history to cover. So that's why it's taken so long to get this episode out. But it is here now. And because there's so much information, Dynastic China didn't end until about 1912, 1913. So realistically, that's a lot to cover. So we're going to do this in sections of almost kind of like a micro pod, a little micro series within the podcast because this is really crucial and and prevalent information for those who are trying to understand where our food comes from, how it's evolved, how it's shaped all of humanity. And that is a really basic foundation for how we cook today. These cooking techniques that have evolved over time and a lot of these cooking techniques and procedures actually started in ancient China. It's really influenced all of our cultures around the world. So I just wanted to start by saying that and bear with us while we explore this micro series that has been long awaited. I hope you guys enjoy it. I have enjoyed absolutely writing it, researching it, scripting it, and now recording and editing it. So please enjoy. The history of the salt industry in China begins with Huangdi, the Yellow Emperor, who invented writing, transportation, and weapons. He is also said to have led the first war in history that was over salt. In the province of Shanxi, although it is arid and has dry yellow earth and desert mountains, it also has a lake called Yuncheng, which bears salty water. In ancient times, finding water usually meant that there wasn't just water but there was salt food and other animals who would find their way to the water and lake yuncheng became an area of constant war over control of this lake by 6000 bc chinese historians believe that each year the lake's waters would evaporate in the summer due to the peak heat of the sun and people were able to harvest the salt crystals on the surface of the water. Salt production that occurs through evaporation or harvesting predates the salt substitute of soy sauce. Salt production dates back to almost 2000 BC, whereas soy predates to only 1300 BC. 
Written records of the production of salt in China date back to 800 BC, describing the trade and production of sea salt during the Xia dynasty, at least a thousand years prior. This production of salt occurred by filling clay vessels with ocean water and boiling the water to leave the remaining salt crystals. Although iron was available in China around 1000 BC, the first evidence of iron being used in salt production was in 450 BC by a man named Yi Dun. However, the story of Yi Dun was not recorded until a writing in 120. 29 BC, claiming that Yi Dun rose to prominence by producing salt in pans. It is said that he produced salt by boiling brine in iron pans, which became the main technique for salt production for the following 2,000 years. The story goes that Yi Dun was in cahoots with an iron master by the name of Guozong, as well as a rich minister, Fan Li, who is believed to have invented fish farming. Fish farming was associated with areas that produced salt for centuries, after realizing that salt and fish made excellent life partners. Many people worked selling a combination of fish and salt, including Mencius, the Chinese philosopher who lived from 372 to 289 BC. The Chinese, the Venetians, the French, the Romans, and many other governments throughout history would tax salt as a means to publicly fund wars. It was not uncommon for soldiers and workers to actually be paid with salt, and salt was often interchangeable as some form of currency. If you think about Chinese cuisine or other East Asian cuisines in general, it's difficult to even really picture one of these chefs going all salt bay on their dishes. I mean, sprinkling on salt onto food has never really been a practice within these regions of the world because most of the salt within the dish is already added during the cooking process, usually through salt-based sauces, paste, or other kinds of condiments. Understanding that the salt monopoly caused massive taxation, salt was considered an expensive and luxury type food item, so infusing condiments, sauces, and paste with salt would allow you to stretch the use of the salt mainly through fermentation and that would enhance the saltiness as well as other umami flavors within the condiments. Sichuan has been known to be a salt-producing region since 3000 BC. Until this point in time, the states had been in a constant state of war for centuries, and finally salt elicited a unification of China by solving the debate of government and the rights of rulers since salt was so heavily taxed for centuries, even as far back as the 20th century BC. The ancient written character to depict salt is called Yan, and is essentially a pictograph displaying tools, an imperial official, and brine. Therefore, even the written character used to describe salt demonstrated the control of the state over its production. Salt is a necessary dietary substance for all humans and it's essential to our survival. Since everyone was required to purchase salt to survive, the government placed heavy taxes on salt to support the state. This tax took roots in Confucius's time from 551 to 479 BC, wherein the rulers of the states of China organized a meeting of the greatest minds, including Confucius himself, to advise the current ruler and to debate. A hot topic for these debates was the salt tax. Since Confucius was considered the first moral philosopher, his goal was to improve human behavior, teaching others that treating other people well was just as important as showing respect to the gods and respecting one's parents. The first writing about salt administration in China is called the Guanzi, which relays the financial and economical advice from the minister of the ruler of the state of Qi, who lived from 685 to 643 BC. Historians believe that this text was written somewhere near 300 BC since it describes seven of the states from the eastern state of Qi. 
The minister suggested that if the salt was priced higher than its original purchase price, the state would have been able to import salt to sell for a profit. At the time, some individuals still had a severe lack of salt in their diet, resulting in illness and therefore would still be willing to purchase salt at the higher price. The thought was that salt could save the economy of the state. Chi was under influence of legalists who had formed new ideas regarding salt administration. Chi was in a state of tr struggle for survival and was eventually conquered by the western state Qin. The ruler of Qin became the first emperor of a united China by 221 BC, and the empire remained in effect until 1911. The ideas of Guanzi became the foundation of the ruling of the new emperor of China and the Qin dynasty became known for its public works endeavors, as well as its very strict laws. The monopolies on salt and iron industries allowed the government to raise the cost of salt and iron to ridiculous prices. This was also the first occurrence of a monopoly on a product that was essential to the survival of humans. However, the Qin dynasty existed for less than 15 years before it was replaced by the Han dynasty in 2007 BC. The Han dynasty decided to stop the monopolies on salt and iron to prove themselves as a wiser form of government, but since armies were still being deployed to push push the Huns away from China in 120 BC, the Han dynasty had to drain the treasury in order to pay for the cost of the wars. As a result, the emperor of Han had tried an iron master and salt master to resurrect the industrial monopolies in order to recover what they had lost from the treasury, and within the next four years, both the iron and salt monopolies were implemented again. For its time, China was essentially the most advanced civilization on earth, and the Chinese world expanded even further than the world of the Romans. When the Emperor Wu Di sent Zheng Qian on a quest to discover allies in the west past the deserts, he discovered the fairly advanced civilization of the Roman Empire in 139 BC. Zheng Qian traveled to what is now Turkestan and back for 12 years and reported on an incredible discovery, a modern western civilization. Around 104 BC and 102 BC, the Chinese armies entered the city, the former Greek kingdom called Sogdiana, with its capital in Samarkand where they encountered and defeated a force partially comprised of captured Roman soldiers. In China, the salt and iron monopolies whose profits funded many of these adventures remained contentious. In 87 BC, Emperor Wu Di, considered the greatest emperor of the four-year-old Han dynasty, died and was succeeded by the eight-year-old Zhao Ti. In 81 BC, six years later, the now teenage emperor agreed to invite a debate among wise men on salt and iron monopolies. He summoned 60 notable people with varying opinions and philosophies from all over China to discuss state administrative policies. The central concern was the state monopoly on iron and salt, but what resulted was a contest between Confucianism and legalism about the roles of good governance, a wide-ranging argument over the obligations of the government, state profit versus private initiative, the logic and limits of military expenditure, the privileges and limitations of government to engage in the economy. While the names of most of the 60 participants are not known, their claims have been preserved from the Confucian point of view in written form the Yanti Lun, the debate on salt and iron. On the one hand, Confucians, influenced by Mencius, when asked how the state could make money, responded, why should your majesty use the term profit? All I am concerned with are the good and the right. If your majesty says, how can I profit my state? Your officials will say, how can I profit my family? 
and officers and common people will say, how can I profit myself? Once superiors and inferiors are competing for profit, the state will be in danger. From the other extreme, ministers and philosophers were inspired by the legalist Han Feitzi, who passed away in 233 BC. Han Feitzi was a pupil of one of the most prominent Confucian teachers, did not feel that it was realistic to base the state on morals. He claimed that it had to be focused on the exercise of authority and the moral code that enforced harsh penalties on the lawbreakers. Rewards and fines should be immediate without any unreasonable interpretation. He claimed that laws should be enforced in the interests of the state and that citizens should be governed by fear of retribution. If his method was pursued, quote, the state will get rich and the army will be strong, he said. Then it will be possible to succeed in establishing hegemony over other states. In the argument concerning salt and iron, the legalists concluded it is difficult to see in these conditions how we could prevent the soldiers who defend the Great Wall from dying of cold and hunger. The Confucian reply, however, was that the true conqueror does not have to make war, the great general does not need to put troops in the field, nor have a clever battle plan. The sovereign who reigns by bounty does not have an enemy under heaven. Why do we need military spending? Which elicited the response, the perverse and impudent Han has been allowed to cross our border and carry war into the heart of our country, massacring our population and our officers, not respecting any authority. For a long time, he has deserved an exemplary punishment. Borders were argued to have been permanent military camps that caused inner misery for citizens. Even if the monopolies on salt and iron represented at the outset a useful measure in the long term, they can't help but be damaging. Even the need for state revenues was debated. A participant quoted Laozi, a Confucian contemporary and Daoist founder, as saying, A country is never as poor as when it seems filled with riches. However, Emperor Zhaodi maintained the monopolies, as did his successor, but Zhaodi only ruled for 14 years and lived to the age of 22. In 44 BC, the monopolies were repealed by the following emperor, Huangdi. The treasury was emptied by a third western voyage to Sogdiana within the three following years, wherein the monopolies on salt and iron industries returned once again. The monopolies have been revoked and periodically reinstated, usually in conjunction with military operations and in compliance with budget requirements. Toward the end of the first century AD, a Confucian government minister had them once more abolished, declaring, Government sale of salt means competing with subjects for profit. These are not measures fit for wise rulers. The state's salt monopoly vanished for six centuries. It was reinstated again, though. Don't you worry. Half of the income for the Chinese state was collected from the salt monopoly during the Tang Dynasty, which lasted between six 18 and 907. Aristocrats presented their abundance of salt in a luxurious adorned salt cellar, whilst also displaying their salt wealth by serving pure salt at the dinner table. This was rarely done in China since the salt became so ludicrously expensive due to the salt monopoly that peasants would create fermented salt condiments, pastes, and sauces to get the most possible use out of their salt. This ornate display of pure salt at the dinner table was practiced strictly among the wealthy. Over the ages, several common uprisings vehemently opposed the monopoly of salt, notably the violent uprising that seized the city of Xi'an, slightly north of Sichuan in 880. 
Yet the other major legal and ethical problems that have remained unanswered throughout this huge controversy over assault and iron, the need to benefit privileges and duties of the aristocracy, relief for the poor, the value of a stable currency, the correct budgetary pressures, the possibility of tyranny, and the boundary between the legal system and dictatorship, and they are all still unsolved problems to this day. Like that of the Sichuan Chinese, the Egyptians were thankful for vegetables stored in brine or salt. There is no food better than salted vegetables, were the words described on ancient papyrus. The Egyptians often made a sauce of fermented fish or fish entrails in brine, similar in nature to the Chinese precursor of soy sauce. The Egyptians might have been the first to have cured meat and fish with salt. The early Chinese record of salted fish preservation ages from about 2000 BC. Salted birds and fish were discovered in Egyptian tombs from much earlier than the Chinese varieties of salt curing and fermentation. The Chinese have pickled and fermented vegetables for thousands of years, wherein cabbage was among the first of the crops used. It turned out that salt was a manifestation of one of the most timeless beliefs in life and the universe's order since the 4th century BC. Chinese belief in yin and yang energies is present in most of the world's philosophies, sciences, fundamental concepts of cookery, and there's always been a belief that two conflicting forces have come to completion, one kind of obtaining a missing piece and the other shedding that extra piece. Ancient China ended in February 1912, when the last of the Chinese emperors relinquished the throne. For China, the next century was a time of transition, reform, and re-evaluation. After 1912, the nascent Chinese Republic became financially strained as World War I drained Europe's treasuries, barring loans that would have otherwise been readily available to the budding and battered country. As a result, China used one of its oldest tactics to replenish its treasuries. Salt. <laughs> the new government received a Western loan of $25 million from the Quintuple Bankers Association in April 1913. The Salt Administration's revenue became collateral to ensure repayment of the loan. The Salt Administration that the Republic inherited from the emperors was intricate and unethical. The Chinese put a non-native in command to purge the regime to recover legitimacy in the Western bankers' eyes. The Chinese administration appointed Irishman Sir Richard Henry Dane, the chief foreign inspector who became aptly named the Salt King. Salt was taxed from producer to buyer under the former Salt administration. One had to pay 42 separate taxes to enter the province of Hubei. Salt production was a government monopoly, but China was too large to regulate the production, trading, and transport of all of the country's salt. As a result, the government began regulating trade by allowing an elite group of traders to transport the salt from its production site and then taxing the transportation rather than the salt itself. These elite businesses, known as Yuancheng, were traditionally family-owned and could lease or retain these privileges between generations as a family monopoly. The salt smuggler is a frequent hero mentioned in Chinese folklore who battles salt's wicked and oppressive administration. More often than not, the tale's protagonist is not the government, but it's the Yuan Chang. Salt merchants gathered and loved exhibiting their riches. The province of Shangxi and Shangxi province are renowned for luxurious homes designed by the salt traders of the 17th century. Salt traders founded the garden that is now one of China's most popular tourist attractions in Shuzhou, a city of waterways roughly 50,000 miles west of Shanghai, best known for its silk merchants. 
salt trafficking was common, Dane discovered that smuggled salt accounted for half of the salt purchased in China. Since there was no standard unit of measurement, the Yuan Cheng brought back undocumented salt and sold the excess on the black market. Boaters and cart drivers bribed inspectors and profited from the salt trafficking. Dane believed that the salt trafficking ring on the Yangtze River alone consisted of at least 40,000 smugglers, so he coordinated the Salt Preventative Service at strategic locations with salt police stations, but it did not stop the trafficking. Dane asserted that it is the salt revenue that has been safeguarding the credit of China. Salt has always formed one of the principal sources of government revenue, but since June 1913, when the reform administration was inaugurated, it has leaped into first place. The leading source of government revenue was maritime customs until 1915. However, after the Salt Administration's reinstatement in 1915, Dane reported that salt sales rose by 100% compared to the year before. Dane observed that the Chinese consumed more salt than even the Indian average. He claimed that China and Japan were the world's primary salt consumers at approximately 20 pounds of salt per capita. Neither Chinese nor Japanese consumption is as high as American consumption, and Japan has relatively inadequate salt production conditions. Dane observed that the Chinese also use a great deal of salt for soaking and preserving vegetables, salting fish, pickling, and preserving meat, which is why it is such a salt-dependent country. Dane arrived in China when the majority of salt production involved windmills pumping salt into evaporation ponds. However, Dane said, the best salt in China is that produced from the salt wells of Sichuan. Sichuan produced about one-fifth of Chinese salt, and Dane had arrived at the end of the Golden Sichuan Salt Age, which had begun in the 18th century. Salt wells surrounded Zigong City, and it had 1,700 salt merchants between 1850 and 1877, where four families accrued some form of mythical capital which accounted for 20% of the salt supply. Saigon grew along the Fusi River, a gracefully winding Yangtze branch crowded with shallow ore-powered boats transporting salt to central China. The Yangtze River is a 3,700-mile waterway from the Tibetan mountains to Shanghai Harbor, splitting China's north and south. It is the world's third longest river on Earth, yet China had such a lack of transportation infrastructure before its communist triumph in 1949 that there were no bridges built to cross the river. The Yangtze was the most extensive transportation passageway through China and was the only link between northern and southern China. In the 17th and 18th centuries, salt merchants frequently visited Zigong, a small provincial town. A guild hall was built in Zigong in 1736 for salt merchants outside the province of Shangxi. The hue of a bride at her wedding was a sign of pleasure, thus salt traders created the Red Palace of the Daoist stories with gold-colored carvings. Envious of the flashy new guild hall, the salt merchants of Saigon constructed their own building with red pillars and winged roofs, a temple built on a high bank of the Fushi overlooking the river and congested traffic of boats rowing salt cargo to the Yangtze. Until 1902, shortly before Dane's arrival, the Chinese used oxen until coal-fired steam engines came into play. Saigon ox herd was usually about 100,000 heads in the 9th century. Because of oxen, beef was part of the working-class diet in Saigon, unlike most of China. Salt employees would boil the rough old ox meat on the rig they labored until it was soft, and then they would apply the most famous Sichuan seasoning, ma la. 
Unique to Sichuan, Ma is the fiery flavor of a wild tree peppercorn named Hua Jiao, with a taste like a peppercorn, caraway clove, but powerful enough to numb the lips. In Sichuan, two types grow, clay red peppercorns and more perfumed brown peppercorns. La means hot spice with tiny burning peppers. The combined seasoning, Ma La, encompasses the flavor profile of the Sichuan cuisine. Another Zigong salt staff specialization was Huobianzi. The rough thigh of an old salt well ox was sliced in a steady, paper-thin slice by slowly rotating the leg. Slices can be up to two yards long, flavored with soy sauce and salt, dried and grilled at low heat fueled by burning ox dung. Modernly, they use gas heaters, obviously, but Huobianzi cured over ox dung supposedly has a unique flavor. The Huobianzi gets served in vegetable oil with hot peppers. In modern Zigong, the oxen's old working legs are pretty hard to find nowadays, but some farm animals that are too old to function can be satisfactory. Meanwhile, affluent salt dealers opted for more exotic food. The stranger the ingredients and the more intricate the process is, the more prestige the dish has in China. Soaked frog was Zigong salt merchant's favorite. A few bits of wood would float in a large brine container. Live frogs would be placed in the pot, perching on the wood bits, and then the pot was closed. The container would be opened after six months, and the frogs would be dead and dry on the wood, but cured due to the salt, and then they would get steamed. Salt traders often fancied stir-fried frog stomachs. Unfortunately, the stomach of a frog, although apparently is tasty, is not a very valuable source of nutrients. The inhabitants of Zygon claim that a chef would have to sacrifice a thousand frogs to get one serving of stir-fried stomachs. The beginning of the end for the ancient Sichuan salt industry came late in 1943 when a rotary drill first bore a well in Sichuan. It took another 20 years to see the improvement. Saigong was already a backward rural town of over 300,000 inhabitants residing amid feudal brine derricks in 1960. That year, the construction of Sichuan's last percussion drilled shaft finished. Sichuan salt manufacturers soon used vacuum evaporators and early rotary drills and rock salt mining, producing modern white salt with uniform crystals. Saigong received its first modern mass transport in the 1960s. As brine boiling diminished, Sichuan engineers made new use of natural gas at wells. Giant gray bladders were placed on the roofs and loaded with local natural gas. They continued their routes with the sizable rectangular bladder approximately as wide as the truck. As the bus turned corners, the large bladder shook and jiggled like jello and eventually deflated. The gray bag would fall from the roof as the gas emptied from the bladder. Locals called the Kibao buses, meaning big bag of gas. Buses required regular refueling. And today, with Zygong tripled in population, the old buses are kind of a humiliating eyesore, and the remaining are stuck with the unwanted rural roads. Zygong is now a sprawling community with a million inhabitants, including suburban residents. Stone-edged gaps are all that remains in several wells. Just a few derricks exist in the hilly municipality, but several existed until the 1990s and some as recently as 1998. Scholars struggle to preserve them, but these are not ideal times for landmark preservation in a modernization-loving China. 
two twin derricks, Zygong's symbol, one 290 feet high and the other 284 feet high, were demolished in 1993. They became dangerously decrepit and the government did not invest in restoring them. Still operational is the Shenhai Well, an old rigid device made of tree trunks and rocks. Like hundreds of wells once drained into Zygong, the front gate's threshold is two feet high to symbolically retain the riches inside. The well has 10 staff who hold it 24 hours a day. A cable steadily lowers into the soil for several minutes, then emerges with a long wet bamboo tube placed over a tube by a worker pressing the leather valve at the bottom of the tube, releasing several bucket loads of brine. The brine evaporates in well-heated dishes. Upon the drilling of the well, it had approximately 8,500 cubic meters of petroleum. Operators claimed it left 1,000 cubic meters in 2000. The Shangxi Guild Hall remained a guild hall until the last emperor's collapse. Then, Chiang Kai, Chinese Sheikh's nationalist campaign, became district headquarters. Since the communists came to power, Deng Xiaoping, a Sichuan-born secretary general of the Chinese Communist Party, wanted to make it a salt museum. Today in Zaigong, there are still some decaying tile-roofed Chinese houses with southern-style rooftops, but most of them are in disrepair, obviously pending demolition. As in Beijing, the government instructed the removal of ancient landmarks to make room for perpetually unfinished structures that remain concrete and exposed steel rods since the companies that constructed them collapsed. The Guild Hall is a national landmark. Locals, however, are invested in the tiny amount of salt still produced at the Shenhai Well. They name it flat pan salt and claim that the salt is better for pickling and is more refined than commercial salt produced in vacuum evaporators. The Zygong market sells the flat pan salt, but outside of Zygong, this medium-grained, untreated salt is hard to find. Sichuan province is twice France's population, and as the Chinese population increased at an unparalleled pace in the mid-20th century, the number of Sichuan inhabitants rose to its present 100 million, much of them crammed into the eastern half of the province. Sichuan also has a bamboo mountain park, home to the world's only surviving wild panda population. However, several provinces are subtropical, kind of like South America. The Sichuan ecosystem is a testament to Liebing's 3rd century BC water conservation efforts. The government implemented waterways into lush green quilts of flooded rice paddies, dark soiled patches of vegetables, cypress groves, and bamboo shoots. Soil degradation is rarer and rarer. Nevertheless, even with all of this rich farming, farmers still tend to be poor. They grow massive quantities of grain, but many people in the villages are along dirt trails that link rice paddies and fields. They dwell in patched, decaying, mud and straw homes, and some are even adorned with Mao's massive posters. Children travel miles to school around the dikes connecting rice paddies and mountains. Women with brightly colored parasols bear children on their backs in wicker strap-on chairs. A frequent sight in the Sichuan countryside seen in Marco Polo's China is noodles about seven feet long hanging on a line to dry like laundry. Although the government instructed the removal of most of the large Derricks, several mi minor brine wells remain. One in Dayin, west of Sichuan's capital Chengdu, had a single post at only a thousand feet deep. It was considerable depth by any standards other than that of the Chinese, but the brine was insufficient with only 10% salt at that comparatively shallow depth. That's why the Chinese mastered deep drilling. 
There was a stone tool next to the Dayan pole. A lone farmer would sit on the stone with his feet pedaling a bamboo wheel, raising the bamboo tube into the thousand foot hole. The brine is piped into a tank with a bamboo wheel about 10 feet high above it and bamboo cups lashed to its rim. A man walking cautiously inside the wheel, a simplified variant of Salsomaggiore's medieval wheel rotated this larger wheel. The wheel scoops the brine on top of a dry branch wall. The brine dribbles down the trees, harnessing the wind and the sun to become more concentrated. Since pouring into the tank below, it was able to evaporate. Since this well had no natural gas, regionally abundant coal was used for heat. The government salt corporation sealed the well in 1998, capping the small hole in the ground with concrete and several other wells in the region, claiming that selling non-iodized salt was inferior and prohibited. By Chinese historical norms, salt producers are no longer closely regulated. Tax is on the sale, not manufacture, and it's no longer a significant source of profits. However, the iodine necessity is now considered a different form of salt regulation by the government, and that's why they capped the day and well. World Health Organization and UNICEF advise salt manufacturers to use iodine to avoid goiter and thyroid gland enlargement. When everybody uses salt, it's an ideal delivery vehicle. They say that 1 billion people worldwide fear iodine deficiency. Besides thyroid enlargement, iodine deficiency signs can include nervousness, elevated and rapid heart rate, and muscle fatigue. Iodine deficiency may also include childhood psychiatric disorder. Iodine healed goiter until it was understood to be iodine. Humphrey Davy, among others, speculated that iodine was an ingredient, but it was Jean-Baptiste Dumas, the French chemist and creator of one of France's first industrial colleges, who in 1819 proved that iodine was present in a natural sponge, a traditional treatment for goiter. Again, China was generations ahead of the West in handling goiter. In the 4th century AD, Chinese physician Ko Hung recommended alcoholic extract from seaweed to treat goiter. Many seaweeds are high in iodine, and the Japanese, who consume plenty of seaweed and fertilize crops with it, have had minimal contact with the disease. Goiter has no experience in coastal regions in China, but has been troublesome in the mountainous interior provinces like Sichuan. American salt is iodized. Having few goiter instances, the British do not iodize their salt for the most part. What was once Burma is now modern-day Myanmar, and has they have an iodized salt policy, but the tribesmen in the remote highlands don't have access to the iodized salt and have to purchase it illegally over the Chinese frontier. They sell uncommon, threatened wildlife species in return for Chinese salt, which they believe will help their goiter epidemic. The Chinese esteem these folk medicine creatures. Antelope-like Saro's tongues are said to relieve headaches, and goat-like Goral's nimble legs are ground into a substance used on aching knees. Rare Himalayan black bears hunted for gallbladders are used to cure liver and abdominal illnesses. Trade across the Myanmar frontier is particularly tragic because most of this Chinese black market salt is not iodized and it's not going to relieve Myanmar of any goiter epidemic. Iodized salt has been contentious in developed countries where salt regulation by the government exists. The transition heated success with health officials, physicians, and scientists, but it remains unpopular with small independent salt producers. 
As China modernized its state, its salt also became modern with small standardized grains and added iodine. As a result, the Chinese began looking for more irregular salts, even if the quality was a little less pure. Impurities are the stuff left in, though they often tend to contain additives. Ironically, the debate about iodized salt is the mistrust of chemicals. <laughs> Wary consumers in Sichuan insist iodine provides a strange flavor. However, small producers still believe the iodization is a conspiracy to force them out of the trade and grant a monopoly to state salt firms. Like the family at the Tiny Foot operated well, Captain Day and salt workers have limited information and resources to follow iodized salt regulations. The Chinese authority is reluctant to repeal its decision to prohibit non-iodized salt. China was reluctant to part with its emperors along with many ancient philosophies. Among modern China's remaining ancient ways are food attitudes about salt and seasoning and preparation methods. The Chinese are delighted to eat wherever. Avenues and roads scattered with market stalls are found all across the country. On the Trans-Siberian Railroad traveling from Moscow to Beijing, the Chinese use the furnace at the end of the cars used by the Russians to produce tea to cook meals. They crowd into the dim closet-like room chop vegetables and spread seasonings. They not only prepare food and eat regularly, they speak about the value of their meals. Food sometimes seems like an addiction in China and the communities themselves are also very food-centric. Southern food, mainly Cantonese cuisine, is said to be the greatest in China. However, after 1949, when Hunan's Mao Zedong and Sichuan's Deng Xiaoping came to power, hot spicy rice, la, from southwest China came into play. If you don't eat la, you are not revolutionary became a common phrase. In 1959, a restaurant was founded in a Beijing house of garden courtyards for an emperor's son in the 17th century. It was unsurprisingly a Sichuan restaurant and was called Sichuan Restaurant. Longtime premier Zhao Enlai and Deng Xiaoping were regulars. It was considered one of the only decent restaurants in communist Beijing for years. The restaurant remained an icon of the times until a Hong Kong billionaire purchased its antique setting in 1996, converting it into a private members-only club with a gentlemanly opera reminiscent of the British colonial era. Chinese cuisine plays a crucial role in combining the primary flavors. There's even a musical jingle about Sichuan's six foods, Ma, La, Tian, Suan, Jian, Ku. Ma, the spicy huajiu, is Sichuan's sixth flavor, while La, hot peppers, is also typical of the region. Tian, meaning sweet, Xuan, meaning sour, Jian, meaning salty, and Ku, meaning bitter. Each dish has a flavor or combination of flavors, mala being Sichuan's most popular combination. Jian, salty, is the most commonly used flavor, which balances the other flavors. Salt can pull out sugar and mild sweetness within a dish. After salt and ginger were introduced to Sichuan in ancient times, salt and spicy, xian la, became such a standard Sichuan mixture that bottled soy sauce and hot peppers became a household staple. In China, these variations counterbalance meals by creating a full taste and mixing opposites. The Chinese philosophy of the two opposing forces, yin and yang, have long been associated with cooking. The Chinese classify their foods as either warm or cold due to their characteristics instead of temperature. Not all cooks agree on which foods are considered hot or cold, but 
fat meat, hot spices, and alcohol are usually considered hot, whereas plain vegetables and fruit are considered cold. Ancient ideas, including hot and cold foods, are also debated in China. Ma la, or very salty dishes, contrast with bland dishes. Tian, sweet, is also an excellent counterbalance to ma la. Tian xiao bai, meaning sweet white stew, consists of thick bacon strips filled with sweet bean paste on sweet rice, sprinkled with sugar. Tian xiao bai is an excellent counteractant when a bite of ma la dish is flaming your lips. In China, a course is typically a variety of foods in the center of the table, presented on a lazy Susan of sorts so that all the dishes are readily available. People will sit around the table with just a tiny plate or bowl and chopsticks to take bites from multiple dishes to combine different flavors. In all of the courses within a meal, vegetables are kind of the star. Wild mountain vegetables like mushrooms are a Sichuan delicacy, as are various varieties of fresh fried or salted bamboo shoots. The first course typically contains cold temperature foods, the second course contains warm foods, and the last course, particularly in Sichuan, is bland, or a bland soup to soothe the palate. Occasionally, they serve white rice before the soup with a somewhat spicy pao kai. Typically, they do not eat rice with other courses, and most meals, except among the poor, don't really contain rice at all. Historians argue about why the Chinese flavor their food with items that are fermented or pickled in salt rather than directly salting the food itself. The Chinese cook fresh pork and have a long history of salt curing pork to make bacon, hams, and sausages. In 1985, China's pig population was projected at 331 million, higher than any other nation in the world. According to a study conducted between 1929 and 1933, pork and pig lard accounted for 70% of meat-derived calories eaten in rural China. A mixture of sesame, peanut, and other vegetable oils are the primary cooking oil used in Chinese cooking, and it's a modern, healthier alternative to pork fat. According to Huan Wenyan, a cooking instructor at China's only certified cooking school in Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan, you can't cook Sichuan food without duban, he claimed after trying to teach Sichuan cuisine in France during a cultural exchange program for cooking teachers but it was impossible to teach Sichuan without the products. Hua Jiao, for example, we brought what we needed that was practical to carry. Hua Jiao, Duban, Dusi, Jiakai, all of these ingredients, except for Hua Jiao, are salt-based items. Shakai is vegetables fermented in salt, and duban is a bean paste from a large flat soybean dried until it turns hard and yellow, fermented with salt and hot pepper. Dusi is a black paste of fermented yellow beans with a lot of salt and no chilies. Another item used as a salt substitute is MSG or monosodium glutamate. Although it has no flavor of its own, MSG accentuates existing flavors in food, particularly salty flavors, for reasons that no one really understands. But MSG has a long history within Chinese cuisine and is a bacterial fermentation product similar to kind of making yogurt or vinegar. In the food background, MSG kind of swam upstream from Japan to China. Uh, unlike most other Asian foods, traditionally the Japanese extracted it from a seaweed known as kombu. In 1908, Japanese scientists isolated MSG from the glutamic acid sodium salt of the kombu. Since the 1950s, wheat gluten carries out this fermentation process instead. Chinese cooks use MSG since Chinese foods are not directly salted. 
Chinese salt and bean condiments like duban and dusi come in many varieties, but Chinese cuisine's essential condiment is soy sauce. School children in China learn a jingle from the Middle Ages with the seven basics required every day: firewood, rice, gasoline, salt, soy sauce, vinegar, and tea. There is an ancient tradition of peasant-made soy sauce in China, but such sauce is becoming kind of scarce. Today, the manufacture of soy sauce occurs in factories in China and Japan. The Chinese claim that it is a complicated operation, and the factories do just as good of a job as the peasants ever did. However, anyone who has sampled the incomparably more potent peasant commodity may challenge that statement. Dayan farmers stopped soy sauce production in the early 1990s, although they were still pumping brine with pedals. They claimed it was too much effort, and factories could manufacture it too cheap to compete. However, an odd economic twist still allows an artisanal soy sauce in Lezi's Sichuan region. The Lezi Fermented Food Company was a nationalized private factory during the communist overthrow, recognized as the Liberation in 1949. However, in 1999, the state declared that Lezi would no longer make soy sauce since nobody was interested in purchasing the firm. Its hundred employees got severance pay and they were left unemployed. Ten of them used the company's compensation funds to purchase the plant and relocated to a three-flight outdoor mud and stone stairway to a storage area. On a town edge hilltop, they no longer had the machinery or resources, so they began producing their soy sauce the way peasants used to make it. Some factories use crushed soy oil refuse to produce soy sauce, but the current Lezi firm uses fresh whole beans steamed until smooth. Beans are then put on flat oval straw trays and placed in storage. Then they introduce yeast. The trays are left for three days in the concrete storage room until mold develops on top. At this stage, factories accelerate the fermentation phase by holding the beans in heated bins before adding salt. However, in Lezi, the moldy beans are mixed with salt and water, then stored in. Huge crocks. Depending on atmospheric factors, the pots are left outside to ferment for six months or more. If it rains, they cover the pots with large cone-shaped lids made of sewn palm fronds. Eventually, the paste kind of feels like dirt, and water is applied. A pipe filtrates the mush and steamed to sterilize the final product. Some sauces are deeper, brighter, thicker, or thinner, and Lezi's best sauce is not as thick as its number two offering, but it has a rich color and flavor. The differences between the sauces happen during the fermentation of the sauce and the water applied at the end. Soy sauce is marketed the old-fashioned way in Lezi. Byob, bring your own bottle and get some crock-ladled sauce. Wobo is a space in the factory with a shiny new rig that manufactures the same concoction under the Wobo brand. The machine computer seals soy sauce into plastic bags for out-of-town sale. If we should consume more or less salt has been an ongoing controversy since ancient times, and you know it's between those who think salt is beneficial and those who think it's unhealthy. Both might be correct. I mean, inevitably, the body requires salt. Most studies suggest a link between elevated blood pressure and health complications with consuming significant amounts of salt. The Yellow Emperor's classic of internal medicine, first or second century AD novel, cautioned that salt would induce elevated blood pressure, contributing to strokes. Not coincidentally, low blood pressure can be attributed to a salt deficiency. 
And nowadays, trendy chefs are cooking with more salt. They will serve food on a salt bed, cook it in a salt crust, render it crunchy with big Malden salt flakes. And <laughs> over a thousand years ago, the Chinese baked with a salt crust. Chicken fried in salt crust is an old dish that can be traced back to Canton, but it may have actually stemmed from southern mountain peoples known as the Hakka. And that wraps up our first episode on ancient Chinese food culture for our micro-series, micropod. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed it and we will continue publishing more episodes for this micro-series before we move along from ancient China into India and Central Asian food cultures. And I'm sure some of you are sitting there and wondering, oh my goodness, when are we going to learn how to cook? Well, it's coming. I'm telling you, this all has a rhyme and a reason. All of these ancient historical food cultures will lead us right up into the French Revolution. And that's when we start talking about Escoffier, the modern kitchen brigade system and how that has completely evolved the cooking industry now. And then we'll start to learn some of those basic foundations of cookery, like the stocks, soups, and sauces, uh, mother sauces specifically, that are very, very important foundations to cooking in general. And you may be thinking, well, what does that have to do with China? Well, a lot of the cooking techniques, a lot of the food products, because of the salt monopoly in China, they were using all of these different condiments and sauces to get the most use out of their salt products. And this has also influenced our modern cuisine quite a bit. And a lot of the food techniques and cooking methods that they use were the first original cooking methods and they have translated throughout many different cultures and and all over the world to transform what we now know as modern cuisine. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm looking forward to the next episode of our micropod on China and ancient Chinese food cultures. And thank you so much for tuning into the Kitchen Survival Guide. You can find us on social media at KSG Podcast. You can join our Facebook group, the Kitchen Survival Guide. You can email us at ksgpodcast at gmail.com or visit our website ksgpodcast.com where you can follow along with all of the written modules. We will post all of our show notes there, all of our references for all the materials used to produce, edit, create, research this episode. And you can also help further support these episodes by becoming a member at patreon.com backslash KSG podcast. Until next time, happy eating.